Well, today on the show, I'm joined by Roger Bretherton and Dave Hallam. Roger and Dave join me today to talk about deconstruction. What does it mean to deconstruct? Is it just something that happens when people leave faith or can you deconstruct whilst in faith and maintain faith? Often view it as a sort of ship on the water and you're kind of changing out all the planks and all the bits and the mast and the sails as you're in motion. You need to keep the ship afloat and is it possible to do so? Um, I asked some quite nuanced questions and I really appreciated hearing Dave and Rogers back and forth on this as well. It's uh, really interesting. I might try and get those two back on uh, in due course as well. Um, at the very, very end of the conversation, I ask a question. I, well, I give a statement and I ask for Dave and Rogers' reflections upon what I said. Um, we managed to get Rogers, but for some reason, Dave's audio drops out. And sadly, the last part of the conversation has been lost. Um, there's nothing I can do about it. And I won't try and pretend that I know what Dave said, uh, because it's been a few days now and I've absolutely forgotten. So Dave, I'm sorry, mate, but we lost your response. Um, anyway, if it's your first time here at When Belief Dies, I'd ask you to hit the subscribe and then the notification buttons. That will remind you whenever we release a video. Also, if you give this video a thumbs up, um, that really helps to boost visibility and it helps other people to find the channel. When Belief Dies only grows by word of mouth, so if you wouldn't mind sharing this with anybody you think it might find it a helpful conversation, that's really appreciated. And everybody, I hope you enjoy this conversation on deconstruction with Dave and Roger. Cheers. Hello and welcome to another episode of When Belief Dies. My name's Sam and I'm joined today by the one and only David Hallam. Dave, how's it going? Uh, yeah, I'm good, thank you. Uh, nice introduction there. Good. It makes me feel important and special. I appreciate it. You are the only one that I know about anyway, so if there are more, please don't reach out. I'm, I'm tired of one. Um, <laughs> I'm also delighted to have Roger Bellerton back on the show. Roger, my good friend, how are you doing? I'm really good too, Sam. Um, don't feel as special as Dave, though. I, I don't feel like you, you gave me as much uniqueness in the introduction as you did with him. But, you know, I'll, it's fine. It's fine. Well, for our for our listening audience rather than our watching audience, one, why are you not watching? It's on YouTube. And two, uh, Roger has a massive bookcase behind him, which um, I feel is all he needs to make himself feel grandiose and important. Um, Roger, do you want to explain to us why we've seen you with one bookcase and now we see you with another bookcase? What's happened? Well, I'm, I'm a man of multiple bookcases. Wherever my bookcase is, there's my home. Um, so what's going on? This is an attempt for me to improve my Wi-Fi and therefore the recording of this show by speaking to you from my work office. Um, unfortunately, what we've discovered is that the Wi-Fi is just as bad here or it's my laptop. So one or the other. But yeah, so so when you see me at home, that's my theology books. When you see me here, it's my psychology books usually. I feel like you're the only person I know that's got like an actual like a, I don't know like valid career. I feel like you know for me, I mean I've mentioned this last time Dave was on. I'm in my sort of Harry Potter room. Dave, you're in your lounge, I assume. Fully muted, so I can't hear a word you're saying. Sorry, apparently virtual things are hard, despite being three years of doing them. Um, I was saying I'm in my <laughs> office, though it isn't actually an office. We, it's just the third bedroom, you know, the little one that the desk gets shoved in. So, so yeah. I don't, I don't have I books behind me. I just have <laughs> random artwork from my brother. So it's very pretty. It's good. Um, okay. Anyway, this is what we're going to talk about, which is what we always do. We end up going down tangents talking about was it deconstruction wall last time or something like that. Uh, I'm not sure. Anyway, I did actually want to talk about deconstruction briefly because I thought it was quite a good um, place to begin. Um, 
I've kind of recently began to think through the concept of deconstruction through a new lens and actually began to start wondering whether or not, in fact, the New Testament and people like Paul were obviously having to deconstruct the the frameworks, the methodologies, the way they saw the world as they began to um, realize new truths, the truths to them. Um, they began to try and see the world dif through different lights and different ways and, and how the Jewish people and pagans, as they began to believe in Jesus rise from the dead, had to deconstruct and then reconstruct a new view, a new way of being. Um, and actually, I kind of think, as I look at my life, there are loads of different areas that I'm deconstructing and reconstructing consistently. I think it's quite, it's, what, like, it's one of those buzzwords, along with deconversion and deconstruction, are the sorts of things that you see kind of within the atheist, agnostic, Christian community being talked about quite a lot, like it's uh, it's just about sort of a collapsing of a faith. But very often I wonder kind of like deconstruction often seems to be that you recognize some something is isn't correct in your worldview because you believe this proposition to be true so it could be for instance you know jesus rising from the dead is a proposition that somebody believed like paul uh, to his horror as he was persecuting christians and as that came into the fullness of reality for him he deconstructed his zealous ways his classic sort of uh, pharisaical beliefs and teachings and had to reinterpret what yahweh meant through the lens of this death and resurrection of this human or God potentially as he began to believe and, and work those things through again. Um, I've I just been finding that really, really interesting just to play around with it in, in my head for a little bit. And I know that we all three of us have gone through our own sort of stories of uh, deconstruction, uh, breaking apart different things, being challenged and having to look at how we can reconstruct and move forwards from that. So for me, a few of the big things I've struggled reconstructing would be uh, purpose, um, morality, uh, destiny, these sorts of um grandiose metaphors or narratives that Christianity can quite easily give to somebody uh, yeah, fell fell from the wayside and it's taken a lot of work to kind of begin to rebuild them and even then I kind of find that uh, I might begin to like settle something together build a bit of a jigsaw and something comes along and shakes the whole thing up again I've got to try and rebuild it um, so yeah I thought it'd be good to kind of view today's conversation through the lens of deconstruction I'm aware we're going to go down many tangents and, and rabbit holes and getting lost in the forest of questions which we always enjoy um, but just to begin with, I think it'd be good to yeah, just have that framing for the rest of the conversation, just that we've all been through similar stories, we've all been through different ways of interpreting the texts, and we've all come to different uh, conclusions ultimately. Um, and I kind of like to view those as uh, as resting places rather than destinations. I think recently I was talking to somebody about um, about atheism, they were saying, you know, is it bad that I'm now an atheist? And I was like, no, not at all. If you're If you're an atheist because it's a place of pause, I think that's great. I begin to ask whether it's healthy, if it's a destination. Now, some of my atheist listeners will struggle with that, but for me, atheism is a place where I'm consistently being challenged to push myself from and actually going, am I an atheist? Why am I an atheist? What have I got wrong? Have I, is, is it the correct place to be? And actually consistently reworking those sorts of um, frames over and over in my head. Um, I deconstruct the idea of atheism quite regularly just to reaffirm where I am and where I'm not with stuff. Uh, am I an agnostic? Am I a believer in some description? How do I hold myself? Um, I find it a really helpful tool anyway, and it's a tool that we're going to use today. Um, so Roger, kind of leading on from that, I think it would be good to begin to, I think, start with you and then we'll move to Dave and then we can begin to ask some of the questions I know that we've prepared for, for tonight's conversation as well. But I think it'd be really interesting to kind of hit on um, very briefly for for each of us, the sorts of things that we've been deconstructing as we've been going along the When Belief Dies story. But both you and Dave have been part of the show for quite a long time, had many different conversations about different things. So um, I know you're semi-prepared, but probably not this prepared for it. But for a few minutes, Roger, would you mind just talking us through a little bit of the things that you found challenging, where kind of deconstruction has come about but also where you found yourself in maybe new pastures or new areas that you 
didn't think you'd end up landing in at the beginning of our conversations. Yeah, so I, I think when I first came into When Beliefs Dies, I, I had quite a strong sense that it was something I really needed to do. So I'd sort of heard heard you on Unbelievable and then listened to the show and actually, you know, you and Dave, uh, it was you, Atheist Sam, Christian, Helen, and in the middle, Dave, wasn't it? Originally was the sort of the lineup on the show. But I actually listened to, you know, all the episodes of that show um, and kind of really enjoyed the way it sort of pushed and pulled you, made you think in different ways. So it just sort of made me want to be part of that conversation. Um, my my feeling is that firstly, whatever Christianity is for me, it always involves deconstruction anyway. So there is a sense of sort of constantly holding lightly whatever it is you believe because you're trying to get closer and closer. So the idea of growth really is by definition a sort of an idea of deconstruction. But I think that like the main things I think I've been pushed on since the show, um, since I've been involved in speaking to you, is firstly, obviously, I did the whole Bart Ehrman challenge in which, you know, I was basically faced with someone who very, very ardently argues that, I mean, he doesn't put it this way, but he does pretty much argue that the New Testament is pretty much bullshit <laughs> in its traditional way of being interpreted. Um, and um, having done that challenge, I've had to wrestle with that ever since. So I'm sort of, you know, I'm still reading and thinking and, you know, I've probably read four or five other books since then and listened to various lectures and things like that. So I'm really sort of still in the middle of sort of wrestling with that kind of thing. What What is the New Testament and, and in what way can you believe it and in what way can you trust it? Alongside the fact that as a Christian, I'm actually regularly reading the thing in a devotional experiential way. So it's kind of like all of that's going on at the same time. And then I think that the second thing, and I think this probably will lead into a conversation, Sam, you and I will have eventually, um, particularly given that you released your piece on who who cut the string around the fall and human origins and things like that. And again, for me, that's a really crucial question because it not only intersects into uh, theology and Christianity, also intersects into my psychology. So sort of evolutionary psychology is a really, really powerful explanatory account of why we are the way we are as human beings and i i do think those two things are compatible i don't see them necessarily in the immediate moment as contrasting with one another but i think we then have a bit of work to do on okay exactly what happened there and in what way is that and i think the, those are the two sort of big questions i think you've pushed me on multiple multiple times um and the evolutionary thing really that you've pushed on hardest that has landed with me is just your huge disturbance by predatory behavior and parasitism in the natural world, really, that for you, that's one of the things that makes you think if that stuff's out there, there can't be a good God. Um, and again, I, I'm sort of in the middle of sort of thinking about what I make of that and been to all kinds of lectures and spoken to quite a few people about it. So, yeah, I, I would say I'm in the middle of trying to work out how all that stuff fits together so i think that's a limited deconstruction it's not necessarily a deconstruction right to the core but i think we deconstruct because our meaning systems are like webs and sometimes the core of it gets deconstructed which is i think the most painful and disruptive but sometimes it's the edges of it you're sort of working with and thinking this bit here just doesn't seem to work and um so i guess those are the main things i've been thinking of since since we started talking anyway i find that interesting the um I definitely, for me, the kind of problem of evil or problem of pain or whatever language you want to use has been really, really 
a really big challenge as well as the sort of who cut the string space like explain how sin and the fall makes sense and i can begin to understand why the death and resurrection of christ needs to be a thing um but there was there was a book that you recommended that i read um horrendous evil and something by um by a lady i forget her name as well but i was like okay i'm gonna get this book i'm gonna i'm gonna read it um can you can you remember the name of the book and the author actually, yeah it's it's um uh, I, I can't remember the name of the book but it's horrendous evils marilyn mccord adams is so she's a very very famous sort of writer in the area of the problem of pain and suffering and her her idea is the horror and horrendous evils like the worst possible things that can happen yeah got the book it arrived and i googled her and realized that she died a few years ago from a brain tumor and i was like oh i was really looking forward to talking to her on the show but she seems to have gone through some horrendous evil before this this managed to take place which i find really interesting anyway um you know maybe that's a sign we'll see um <laughs> we'll part that for a little bit but anyway dave i also want to bring it to you because i know that obviously we started when Bleach dies way back in the day when it was a pretend uh, apologetics book club within a christian charity um and you know we've we've been through a lot of different things here and i kind of fell uh off off the christian bandwagon very very quickly whereas i know you've been kind of um, much closer to staying within that sort of framework to a certain extent for quite a while um i think it'd be really interesting dave to hear from you a little bit about the sort of areas that you've found um challenging not necessarily from just when belief dies but from conversations you've had as well being within the sort of christian landscape it might must have been quite interesting uh um, struggling with things or to asking questions at least and probing things and then having Christians ask you about it because you've reflected on a on a public show and then began to see are there actually any good answers to this even within the Christian sphere so yeah Dave has there been anything really in the deconstruction space that you found particularly interesting in, in the last few years in your journey um, yeah there's a few things uh, the analogy there of you falling off the wagon and then what you're trying to think of me um, you know those, those videos when people are like clinging on the back, of, back to a motorcycle um, and they're about to fall off constantly. That's basically what it feels like to me at the moment. I'm clinging on to the, the motorcycle of Christianity um, by my fingertips when some maniac keeps riding it in, in a difficult manner. Anyway, uh, so the things, I mean, what you just said, you referred to there, the problem of like evil in the sense of suffering and problem in the world. I, I feel I'm <laughs> tangent number one straight away. I don't need any opportunity to go off the path. Um, that is a problem of scene within you say answers to questions that someone puts forward say that proposition well what about the suffering of the world and people have all these stock answers and they ignore what you're actually trying to say and they say well i can talk about the problem of evil because of x y and z you're like no you're missing the point i'm not talking about evil people i'm talking about suffering universally so from the fact that almost every single animal will die a horrible death they might starve to death. They might die of old age and their body stop working over time and eventually starve to death. They might um, get killed by another predator and eaten while being alive, or if they're lucky, killed, then eaten alive. So that problem of suffering is often you put that forward and people ignore what you've actually asked and they'll talk about suffering. Or they'll talk about suffering in a very sort of airy fairy way where they won't discuss, say, people who were born into sex slavery and every single sec second of their entire life is abject suffering. And it's not like they have a Western suffering, whereas they lose their job and they have to struggle on a bit of money. No, they are in a horrendously awful, torturous situation from birth to death. <laughs> like that is genuine. And so what I find is one of the difficulties I've come across is, yeah, I agree, the problem of suffering in the world, but not the historical traditional what people are trying to address the problem it's this universal the world is terrible <laughs> like people there's great goodness in it as well i'm not going to be completely one-sided there are great achievements and people have achieved wonderful things and people are looked after and there's altruism to the extreme at some levels but there's this base level of 
yeah, some people's lives are awful, like truly, truly, truly awful. Um, like there's been a lot of recently on the news, lots of children being killed by their carers or parents. And you look at their lives, you're like, their entire life from start to finish was just horrendous. Like there wasn't a, sh a shining light or it wasn't a part of the life. It was the entire experience of existence was horrendous. And you're like, yeah, how do we approach that? Because it's, it's a different to I'm going through a difficult time or season. Let's use those words. Everyone loves a season. Um, so that, that's one of the difficult things I find is people, when I talk about those, people don't like to go very near them because they feel very like, oh, that's a bit beyond the normal question I received. No, that is really problematic. Um, and when you talk about the parasitical nature, Roger, you said that again, the, the natural world is just absolute, just is so brutal. Like it's unbelievable. I think the wasps lay their eggs in caterpillars, which then, so they inject their eggs into caterpillars, which then eat them from the inside. And then one of the wasps, larvae, will borrow its way to the caterpillar's brain, take over the caterpillar in its brain, the other one, and then cause it to flail around so the other ones can escape. That is like, so I suppose when you think about that, you're like, so why was that created? Uh, <laughs> like that's, I know it's only a caterpillar, but still, like that's a pretty bad time for the caterpillar. Just happily munching some leaves and then pff, alien, basically, but worse. <laughs> so, yeah, so I'm sorry, that's a massive ramble, but I suppose that is the, I find that when you go beyond the classic apologetics questions that you'll see how to answer all the questions from atheist question on YouTube, which is like these four different things, and she goes a bit beyond that, and it's like, I found that there's, there's not good answers to those questions. That's the biggest thing I've found is as you investigate, you come across these really like, oh, these are big deals that nobody seems to truly address. They seem to address this side issue of the issue you've asked for or misinterpret the question and answer something else. Uh, so there we go. I'm going to stop talking because I'm doing a ramble now. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. I think, um, I think Roger, it'd be good to hand back to you, mate, and kind of get some of your takes on, on some of that as well. Um, I, I've talked about my, my areas of deconstruction many, many times, but um, a bit of your takes on that. And then I know that you've kind of um, got a few questions for Dave. Dave's got a few questions to you. There'll be a bit of back and forth around the space. So, uh, yeah, would you mind kind of reflecting a little bit on the problem of, of kind of pain and evil and then kind of, yeah, beginning that conversation? Yeah, yeah, thanks. Um, I, I mean, I, I think, I mean, there, there's so many different ways to get, get at it, but the the primary thing I, I sort of view it is that the world is broken and the world is, um, there is an absence of God in the world. So I, I don't think there is a direct continuity between God and the world. The world is not God. So what that means is that there can be absolutely horrific, awful things in the world without necessarily God having anything to do with it. Um, even though you could argue that God is God is present to the entire world, but nevertheless, some of the world is resistant to him. There might be something deep in the fabric of reality that actually prevents God from doing things. Some people would even argue that um, the whole notion of sort of competition, predation, parasitism, that all of that is that's that's basically all a sort of almost like a demonic corruption of good things um, in the world. And then also kind of when you when you do read the Genesis account and you look at the original commission that's given to human beings to have responsible dominion over the world. Me and Sam were talking about how I, I don't necessarily believe that's a literal historical thing that occurred, but I do think it's a it's an account written to say what's our position in the world what, what are we supposed to be doing who are we what's our identity um 
And straight away, there's this idea that we are supposed to sort of tend and deal with things that are growing out of control. So it's almost this idea that even right at the beginning, some people even argue, if you want to take it historically, the world had already fallen and human beings were brought into that to try and deal with it in some way. So so I guess that, that's kind of the way I've I've adopted it. So I guess that's why I ended up in the, the sort of job I ended up in terms of psychology and psychology of trauma particularly. And dealing with yes some absolutely truly horrific and sadistic things that happen to people um I, and i guess two things go on for me when that happens is on the one hand you there's that part of you go how can a child be treated like this and there'd be a god who sat there and watched it and then the other part of it goes but also there's also me who's looking at that and saying on some level that's unacceptable and so I sort of view that, in a sense, God in me is looking at that and going, this is not the way the world is supposed to be. And that's where I see the trace of God, not in looking at that, what's happened to that child, but at looking at the sort of the general outrage that most of the human race would have looking at that situation, that that's kind of where God is to be found in those moments. I, it's, I, I was talking to someone who was working human trafficking, for example, and he was getting really depressed about how ineffective it is, you know, when you have such a systemic thing trafficking children into sex trafficking in his case right across europe and out of southeast asia and in, into the uk and him just saying we just cannot control we can't stop it you know what is the point of this um and him really coming to the conclusion that for him the point of it was that he was there to see it and even though he couldn't do very much the fact that he was there to be outraged and to gather money and to do what he can that's kind of where God was in the midst of it. So I guess that, that's sort of where I ended up, which is I don't see the problem as the uh, don't see the problem of evil as something that can be solved. It doesn't necessarily evil. Those bad things in the world aren't connected like straight back to God. I don't see there's a continuity ne necessarily between them. Um, but I guess more than that, I've, I've viewed it as this is something that, that I should try and do at least something about, even if it's in a very, very small tiny way that that will make a difference to a few a few people so i guess that's where i sort of ended up with it really i, I also know christians who've worked in conservation because they were concerned about animals in the natural world and so they've ended up doing you know conservation work from a naturalistic point of view or ecological stuff so i think part of the christian response is kind of what what can i do that's really small that might help with this How does that align with your view of God's interaction with the world then? I'd be intrigued to know because Christianity historically and traditionally is very, God is very present in the world in some sense. So Sam sounds dumb. This question's too much for him. Um, <laughs> so how does that, um, yeah, how does that relate to God interacting with the world then? If, if that... that is, yeah, what you said there, sorry. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a really important question, Dave, and it's something me and Sam have never quite bottomed out, because my suspicion is that, um, uh, like, me and Sam have never actually talked about this. My suspicion is that he holds quite a, or or thinks that Christians should hold, quite a, a sort of almost Calvinistic view of absolutely everything is caused by God, so everything comes from God and everything is here because of God. Um, whereas I don't hold that view, I view the universe as having a great deal of freedom in it, 
which is what allows evil to occur. Um, you, you know, if you want to add, some people would then add sort of demonic forces into that and say there's this additional thing that then twists everything. I don't necessarily think you need that, really. I think those awful things can kind of develop in any situation where God has been excluded or resisted in some way. So the whole, whole, the whole of creation, in my view, is living in both cooperation and resistance to God all the time. So God is... As it says in the Genesis account, the spirit is hovering over the face of the waters basically all the time trying to work out what can be influenced, what can be changed, what could be worked. And there's a fundamental nothingness at the heart of, of creation because it's not God. It's not the absolute being that is God. Yeah, it's a very different view to <laughs> what most Christians would say. That's a very, it's uh, almost, no, it's not deistic because that's the world's, uh, it's, is it? it's, I, I think so I, I suppose... so, Dave. So, so the, this is the question: is it is it just different from what sort of Western evangelical, yeah, you know, conservative evangelical Christians would say? And the problem is that what happens with that group of people, and I'm kind of part of that. It's not like I'm divorced from that, but there is a danger that some of those people say we have Christianity. This is the real Christianity. All the other versions are not really Christianity, and so it's either this or it's nothing. And therefore, it's it's. It, my sort of view is the view that I'm expounding is is held by, you know, if, if you were to look at many Roman Catholics, if you would talk to, you know, open and relational theologians, um, it, there's plenty of people who hold that sort of view of the world, plenty of sort of philosophers from a theistic point of view would. Um, so, so I'm just always surprised when people go, this is what Christianity is, and it's not that, and you've come up with some aberrant <laughs> version of it. Yeah, wasn't do you think it's or... interesting just jumping in for what Dave does? Do you, do you do you think it's interesting that um that the the major world religions were obviously created at a time when we didn't have, you know, things like anesthetics or or you know, people had a really high level of mortality within their family because of their children dying, etc. Like, I just find that fascinating. I just want to throw that out there as a as an interesting that actually the religions were formed within horrific suffering. Don't think it answers it, but I find it fascinating. Can I, can I, just to come in on that, so, so the people I admire the most in Christian history now are the mystics, really, so particularly the sort of mystics in, in the Middle Ages, so they're the people that I sort of really look to in terms of their relationship with God was really beautiful and something I, I've sort of been very inspired with, and when you look at the context they were working in, many, many of the best mystical writings were written in the middle of the Black Death. And most people say that the Black Death across Europe, it depends who you read. Some people say it killed 10% of the population. Other people say it killed 90% of the population. So, you know, the estimates differ a little bit. Um, but we do know that there are places like where we have good figures like Florence, for example, where 50% of the population definitely died in absolutely, totally horrific ways. And yet, weirdly, here in the UK, during that period of time, the English mystics, we're writing some of the most beautiful material about love, about connection with God, um, about contemplation at the same time. Um, so I kind of have this feeling, it's like every sort of breakthrough, every spiritual breakthrough sort of manifests itself out of a kind of breakdown. It does seem to me that those two things are together. And I think we're in the middle of another breakdown right now. I think it wouldn't surprise me if all kinds of interesting responses emerge to, to the current sort of cultural malaise we're in. I was going to ask on what you said there about it was just saying I'm not I'm not like saying oh your view of Christianity is completely wrong because I'm right that wasn't the point um it was more the if you so this idea of God being present and not I'm just trying to get my head around a little bit how does that 
then work with so the question is then why are you a Christian? Did God intervene to make you a Christian? So I don't know it's very Calvinistic as you mentioned there, the idea that it's God's work. Is it because you've found God through whatever searching and experienced him in some way? Is it because your brain knowledge has you've been created in such a way to eventually seek God. How do you think therefore you become a Christian with this idea of this tension between involved and on its own? I'm trying to think of the, the energy used, but this idea that God is there, but he also isn't. There's this weird back and forth tension between absence and presence. That, I, I think that's actually quite a profound question, Dave. <laughs> that's, that's really hard to answer. Um, I, only in the sense that I think the presence of God so again just referring to the mystics they always have this struggle between the presence and the absence of god that the presence of god sometimes feels like an absence of god which sounds like complete nonsense to sort of scientific westerners really but um and sort of bonaventure's definition of god that god being the sort of the circle whose whose um circumference is intimate it is infinite and whose center is everywhere this idea of god whatever god is is actually ultimately fundamentally undefinable by human beings we can only just about grasp tightly what what god is at so I, so i guess where i end up on that is is basically the idea that um i i, I end up pretty much where paul speaks really which is that basically we have to be told something that we then believe and in believing it we we experience grace and then the process by which we believe it probably is some process that has occurred outside of ourselves. Just by grace, we happen to be at that moment in a place where, where we could accept um, that message in some way. So I feel like we have to respond, but the circumstances in which we respond are, are given to us. So I guess I'm saying, um, yeah, that, that's given to us by grace, but we then have to accept that. So I then hold that sort of view of... Um, Christian belief, you know, Paul Tillich used to call it accepting acceptance. That was his view is we get to the point of God has accepted us and somehow we have to believe that. Um, and again, it, it, when Sam says things like, I'm not sure I'm in control of what I believe and don't believe, I actually think he's absolutely right um, about that. But I think there is a sense in which the fact that I could believe some of the things I still believe wasn't a sign of my merit as such it wasn't there was something morally great about me it was just that in that moment for whatever reason i happened to be open to it which is grace so how does that <laughs> this is I, I can almost feel like i'm going down a certain pathway but i'm just now interested so how does that work with consequence then so if that's the idea that you're sort of prompted through what you hear like classic gospel but there's a bit more than that because it's this well all the things you said i'm not gonna repeat what you said people are capable of hearing <laughs> but how does that work with what's the consequence for not believing then because that's a classic christianism then I'm, I'm literally going to the hell route so you can tell but like classically the consequence for non-belief was punishment of some description yeah. um i say classically i know there's other parts that don't believe that but let's just take yeah. stereotypical like traditional christianity so in this version of christianity you're discussing yeah what's the consequence for unbelief and I suppose the follow-up question would therefore be, what's the point of believing if there isn't any? Is <laughs> a classic. I know yeah. this is very much stick Christianity. <laughs> it's very much like, oh, let's just beat people. It's not the point, but yeah. So, so what I suppose, yeah. Um, what is the consequence of non-belief? What is the benefits for belief? And therefore the question is then why believe, I think is what I'm getting at. Yeah, yeah. So so let, let's, let's look at it in both directions. Why don't I answer it really, really briefly? And then you can ask me what the hell I mean by what I'm saying. <laughs> So, so so as I've kind of 
said a few times to Sam, like my my view is that of all the ways of living that I've sort of explored and looked at, um, following Jesus in the context of an authentic community, in my belief, is the best form of life I've been able to find. So when Jesus says, I will give you life in all its fullness, that is in the best moments of Christianity what I experience living it in every day. So that's so that's that's what delivers it and then the sort of the Christian hope is there's something about that kind of life and that kind of energizing by God that lasts forever you know that goes beyond this life somehow in some way we just have to put faith and hope in and think this doesn't just stop here it sort of gets better and then and then the opposite of that I think from the the biblical point of view is is called perishing or Jesus calls it um, uh, Gehenna doesn't he which is generally how we translate we generally translate as hell but it seems to me it's not so much um, it's not so much like being tormented forever in my understanding of it, because in Revelation, it's sort of the same thing is called the second death. I think it's basically the idea that our lives uh, are given over to futility. In other words, they don't perform any purpose that lasts beyond themselves. Now, that doesn't mean that our lives can't be good. It doesn't mean that there's there's space in between where I know plenty of people who live very much like Jesus and have very meaningful lives as a result we then have to ask you know we, uh, you know what 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 happens to them eternally i just don't know um but um but but my sort of view is basically it's sort of um flourishing and well-being in the ultimate sense versus ultimate futility and like what well, our lives are just sort of wasted really we live we die we're gone um so we end up really with the existential view of the world which is that death is the end and that's that um and we we live with a sense of futility around it now i'm saying that that, that that's a, that's not for me a line down the middle where if you're not following jesus you're living in futility i actually think there's a whole sort of continuum between those two things and actually i think i'm on that continuum somewhere as well so i'm sort of believe it all lives more near jesus but i don't live up to that in its entirety um by any extent and then christians i know who really do live up to it they have a sort of life and a vibrancy and an energy and a sort of spirituality to them that i really crave and i'd like more of so i feel like i'm on the journey towards more of that really and i think it's about which way which way up and down are you moving at any given moment do you do you think that other religions have similar things like i can think of buddhists or zen monks who who have a vibrancy and a way of living that is wholesome and and collective and communal and 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 sacrificial and living without wanting everything yeah. and and a completely different way of viewing the western world and it, it just kind of seems that you know okay there's community there's culture and these sorts of things um and that's great but actually like does it actually matter what it's what it's rooted in like does it matter if there's a tree that is blossoming and beautiful does it matter where the roots go do, do they need to touch christ if they don't need to touch christ then what does it matter like the whole thing sort of for yeah. me kind of doesn't quite make sense I, i'm also very much not trying to make this about me and dave against you roger so um but yeah i think that for me i kind of view other religions like they hold something beautiful as well um and yeah it christianity doesn't necessarily have to be the only one that gives that and if that's all there is to it then why is it true hmm. well i so i i see that i mean so i've spoken to men many sort of buddhist monks really like in you know i've given lectures in rooms full of buddhist monks in saffron robes about mindfulness and then had really really good conversations with them afterwards around 
the, you know, the, the Christian contemplative tradition particularly and how that interacts with Buddhism and things like that. And, and I guess, and then one of the things I've discovered, it's just amazing how many Buddhists you will speak to who actually have a really good working knowledge of the gospels and, and would follow elements of them. So the Dalai Lama's written commentaries on parts of the New Testament and things like that. So it's not as if that's entirely missing um, from their from their sort of view of things. So so I, I guess my approach has been when I've met those people, I've thought these are good people and I want to celebrate what there is of God that's in them. And I can probably learn a heck of a lot from them. I've had the same experience with some Muslims as well. Um, but I guess my if I talk about my own experience, my experience is um, if I practice mindfulness, that's one sort of really positive version of consciousness. If I add God, presence of God into that, it intensifies somewhat more. And then if I add Christ into that, so if I start really adding Jesus into that, it becomes something even more different as well. But I view all those things as kind of good and worthy to be celebrated in some way. But I, I guess I do hold that there's something really, really special about following Jesus that 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 isn't quite there in some of the other things. Dave, you've um you've spoken in, in the past about following Jesus and the sort of commands in early acts and, and the way that Christians should live. Um I I I know you're probably gonna agree with this or or if you don't feel free to push back, but um look at experientialism within belief as a semi part of the sum and there's another another part of the sum that i think we in the west neglect i was kind of getting and alluding to that roger for you a little bit in the sort of monk's way of living not wanting but living in the means that you have and actually giving rather than taking so much and dave i know you've touched on this a few times so do you want dave do you want to go into that sort of point that you've raised i think you were actually talking about it before the show as well so it'd be good to go into that i think um yeah just for clarity, what are you alluding to here, Sam? Just make sure I said the right thing. Selling all the stuff and oh, giving that. it away. Yes. So this is sacrificial nature. Yeah. Yeah. The idea that. So, sorry, Sam. I I feel like you were guiding me in there really well, um, and I was just missing it. Like I missed my exit from the motorway um, because I was like looking at the radio rather than paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize. That sounds so annoyed at me. He's like, this should be professional. Um, so you want to talk about the idea that the aspect of Christianity, which is seemingly ignored in the West is this idea of like self-sacrifice, giving things away. Historically, the early church is seen at least in the writings to be self-sacrifice community. Let me that right. All the nods. Yeah. Well done for the audio listeners there. Everyone was nodding. And he's like, you know, in, you have those things in cinema commentaries. <laughs> the dog has the ball. Anyway, so um, I now have the ball of giving stuff up. So yes, the point is the idea of it's 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 a very big challenge to current Christianity. The idea that Jesus speaks a lot about giving things up, both possessions and your life. Uh, take up your cross and die and follow me. All that stuff is is quite explicit language about the giving everything you own, everything to the cause of the kingdom of God. Um, and the idea that that seems to be very lost if you look at at least the Western church and it, well, lots of church history, actually. I mean, church history is littered with someone going, excuse me, we should probably be living, giving all our stuff up. And then they kill them. And then like a few hundred years later, someone else goes, excuse me, um, you've got lots of stuff and we're meant to give it up. And they go, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, they die as well through some unknown circumstances but that seems to happen a lot in churches or in the modern situation we can no longer kill people in the church so we just um like shun them um and say they're extremist um which if you say oh shouldn't we be giving stuff like oh 
you're just being too extreme. Don't do that. That's nobody does that anymore. <laughs> That's so 1600s. Um, like the so I suppose the question is like how does this work then, and, and your view on this, and how do we reconcile what is in the Gospels and Acts and early accounts of Christianity with what we see now, and how do they connect? I suppose is what I always want to get at, and how can we mirror the two? And there's a whole plethora of questions there. I realise, and I, that wasn't done as well as Sam wanted it to be. Um, I can tell by his frown, but it was done in a manner. Well, if I if I sort of sum it up, Dave, because I've heard you address this quite a few times in other podcasts you've done with with Sam, um, and it has seemed to me that one of your sort of big challenges broken record. Mate. I think it, it's <laughs> well. Well, I think you're right though. Like like the challenge is. If this really is as good as it says it is, why don't people live it to the extreme that, that say, the early church did, generally speaking? You know, that, that's kind of your challenge, really. And I think that's an accurate challenge. Um, I, and I think that the way, the way I would answer that to begin with, and it's a bit of a lame um, answer, is that um, I, I found that kind of when, when I was younger, I had a huge appetite for very radical Christianity and, and did give away everything I owned um, a couple of times actually but I didn't own very much so it's pretty easy to do <laughs> when you only own about four things it's really easy to give them away isn't it um and then as i've sort of got older become more middle class got kids etc um i i found that much harder to do um but i've been frustrated with myself about that if i'm really honest and and increasingly i can sort of feel building in me at the moment just a desire for sort of more radical expression, particularly around material things. I don't quite know what that looks like quite yet, but certainly one of the things we're discussing is with me and my other half, Marie Claire, are talking about is it, with the energy crisis and various people we know losing their jobs and things like that, like how could we sort of redo our house so that other people could come and live with us because they, they might lose their houses and their mortgages might go down in the middle of it. And then also looking at some other friends of mine I know who literally have given away everything they own or, um, you know, downsized radically in order to live more simple lives. Um, and what I'd agree with uh, with you is I'd agree that that is probably the direction we should be going as Christians. And I, I sort of feel a bit ashamed of myself that I haven't done more of that, but I really sort of want to do more of it now as time goes on. And then the, the other thing to sort of add to that is I know one of your sort of big bugbears as you've talked about Christianity is the sort of very, very rich sort of mega church style of Christianity. Um, and while that looked really successful, I, so when that first arrived in the UK, when I first encountered Hillsong, I have to say I absolutely hated it. I thought it was the exact opposite of everything Christian should be, um, just in terms of the marketing and the eight foot high posters of the worship leaders you know in the lobby and all that kind of stuff i really really struggled with it but so many people convinced me that it seemed to have good fruit that i sort of felt like i just had to live with it but i could never really get very enthusiastic about it and then obviously uh, over the last few years i just feel like we've gone through some some weeks where literally every single day there's been a story of some massive mega church pastor falling morally and although I don't take any delight in that, because I think it's hugely tragic, I nevertheless kind of looked and go, you know, I could have guessed that. You know, I could have guessed that that was the kind of thing it was going to lead to 
if you're not going to live lives of humility where it's not about marketing your church it's actually about making contact with other human beings um, and usually the less cool less trendy less good looking human being you know the human beings who actually need your help because um, I sort of I, that's the way I view the ministry of Jesus ultimately is that weirdly Jesus comes um, as God if if as, as I do you believe that you know so Jesus comes as God sounds like what how dare you Jesus comes as God, but then weirdly, a large part of his ministry is actually responding to other people's requests. Other people go, I have a need. I need to be healed. I need some advice. Will you help me with this? Um, and yet he seems really happy to be available to all that. And I think that's that's the direction we should move in. And that's why sort of material poverty really helps us, because it makes us much more flexible and much less concerned about protecting what we have. Um, so I would say, yep, yeah, guilty as charged. I've sort of failed on that, but I, I want to get better. Will you support when belief dies? Your support enables us to keep having these conversations and improving everything that we do. There are three ways to support when belief dies. Firstly, would you rate when belief dies in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Audible? Rating us in these spaces boosts our visibility. Secondly, would you share this episode with your family, friends, and followers? We grow mainly through word of mouth, so please consider who might find this a helpful conversation and share it with them. Lastly, would you consider supporting the show financially? You can support the show on Patreon with a monthly gift or a one-off donation via PayPal or Bitcoin. Everything you give goes directly towards the running and improving of the podcast and YouTube channel. All links are in the description and thank you for supporting the show. Right. Let's get back to this week's conversation. I had um, a really strong message partway through that, Roger, that you should sell all your belongings and um, and set up a, a monthly gift to well, Wembley. No, I'm joking. Um, part, part of the thing that I find really interesting about this is when, when Jesus is in the Gospels, he's portrayed as somebody who is criticizing the classic formation of religion, right? He's he is pushing against the Pharisaical movement. He's even challenging the Sadducees and some of their beliefs around uh, the death and resurrection and afterlife and stuff. And he's doing this in in a way that ultimately gets him killed, right? That is one of the reasons why he dies is because he pisses off the religious people so much that they put into Pilate and Pilate goes, I've yeah, just get on with your lives, you Jews, you cause me so many issues, just 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 get on with it. Um and I find that fascinating, this this idea that this that God comes to challenge religiousness and to express a new way of being, that he spends his time with uh the carpenters, with the fishermen, with the the lowly, but then also begins to somehow capture the the traitors within the Jewish society, the tax collectors, the people that are living amongst the peasants, drawing funds from their livelihoods and giving them over to us over to Caesar, over to Rome essentially. That's that's literally what they're doing right they're collecting the toll that's due because rome is in control of the area and jesus managed to bring these people together and from these different backgrounds and views cultivate a a group of individuals that all believe in his message and his vision and it's an incredible swath of people and you know in in, in my own life the times when i have given away or uh, so i i had kind of like you know many thousands of pounds worth of books when i was at bible college in my last year there was a, a girl or lady um who was struggling to pay her fees so she'd had a degree already she didn't get any bursaries or anything so she was doing kind of bible college but having to pay it all herself and i just gave her all my books and i was like you know i i, I don't need these um 
not trying to make a big a big deal about it, Roger, but I gave her all of my books, um, and she and and she sold them all, and she managed to pay for not all her fees, but yeah, just get rid of, just throw them away, just throw the books away. Um, otherwise, it becomes some sort of weird Nazi burning of books, and we don't want that either. Um, anyway, it's a weird tangent. Um, anyway, I gave away my books. She sold them to other people at Massey Hall, uh, which is the Bible College I went to. No, no big shock there, people know. Um, and uh, she got some money, but she managed to pay a chunk, not all, but a chunk of her fees off, and the absolute feeling of um delight i had from that was incredible like you know i didn't really get that much thanks or anything it really wasn't about but something within me shifted when i took something precious to me which i i held as important which are these like amazing theological books felt like i was called to teach god people his word that i was using them daily for different things and gave them all away completely um and there is something in that in that giving you know it wasn't you know everything it was something important that i could sacrifice for something i thought was more important um, and I think we still see that today, don't we, within society is this sort of effective altruism movement where people are going away and earning money to give that to, you know, it could be something really lame, like, I say lame, really boring, like, you know, mosquito nets, like nobody wants to support mosquito nets, they, they aren't lame, I said the wrong word, to be very clear, but actually mosquito nets save tons of lives, don't they, like you could give your money to, you know, an, a, a Christian charity that might do good, but actually, you know, buying mosquito nets is actually going to do more good in the world and actually save people's lives across the globe. And I just find it really interesting, actually, some of the things we can give resources to are very unsexy, but actually extraordinarily beneficial. And you can r completely eradicate things from from the human condition and actually alleviate a lot of suffering. Um, and Roger, you must have experienced this with individuals in your life who you've come to you for um, maybe therapy or treatment or kind of just expressing things through different counselling services, etc., who have tried to go through something really hard and had to let go of something that's really important to them and it probably felt quite relieved when they managed to give it up and i wonder if there's any sort of parallel between the sort of the sort of um painful element of our lives to letting go of that and giving it away but also how that also links and is mirrored in the sort of holding something of worth and actually giving that up and allowing that to be handed off and, and just letting go and that release within the human psyche there seems to be something that's quite beautiful in that so then roger have you got any more thoughts on on that element let, let me be brief because I want to pull Dave back in um, in a second. But um, what was I mean? As you, you you're sort of picking up, there's loads of really good psychology on this in terms of the psychology of kindness and giving and gratitude and etc. So so all of that is good. The the interesting thing about it is that a lot of that good psychology, some of the psychologists who've done that research are Christians as well. So they're sort of bringing it from that space. Many of them are Buddhists, have a sort of Buddhist psychology view of things. Um, but but I think what's right about it is that something changes in our self-concept when we behave like this, um, which we stop seeing ourselves as constantly sort of impoverished and constantly losing things or constantly having people compete and take things off us. And we become people who are just basically willing, thinking about what can I give and what can I contribute and what I can do next. And I, I do think that's the most healthy human way of living, really, is to think like that. So a large part of the psychology I do is about not falling for negativity bias, which is what's wrong with the world and, you know, isn't it all terrible and let's just get stuck in that cycle, but rather what's good in you, what's good in Dave Hallam, what's good in Sam Davis, what's good in Roger Bellerton, and how do I just make sure that I live out of that in some way every day, in some way that contributes to the people around me. So it's quite local. It's quite a local way of thinking, really, rather than a, a sort of blow you know we could give it to mosquito nets as well but i think even before you get to that it's sort of there's people on your doorstep or in your office or in your family who who benefit enormously and we know that when we do that when you love people for example it ripples through your social network so 
you know, two, three people removed from you will benefit from the fact that you brought laughter, joy, happiness to somebody that day. So kind of going on from this then, I guess, Dave, you've you've experienced it within your life and your family and different individuals who you're related to that work at different charities or different Christian organisations where there are kind of needs within society, right, that Christianity aims to address and, and does address them to a certain extent. But at the same time, we kind of see that because it is having to be directed down a very specific Christian path, we begin to notice that actually people begin to get used quite easily within certain fields. Like it might be little things like, you know, you don't even realize, but actually they're beginning to give more than 24 hours a week towards this. They're beginning to go over and above and do more and more and more. They're beginning to do 40, 50, 60 hour, you know, kind of weeks to, you know, do the lighting at church or do this thing for the food bank or whatever it is and begin to burn themselves out essentially over, over the long run. And I kind of feel that, you know, I, I was quite close to that when I was working at the certain charity that, that you're at now, Dave, but I'm not saying it's all like that, but it, there does seem to be the ability for people to fall into um, the used camp within a good. So there is a good that Christianity can deal with in the world, but actually because it's been labeled as a Christian thing, you get, often easily drawn into doing more than you might necessarily and they're actually kind of burnout the sort of end result is that people really struggle and can't cope and have to stop or all lose their faith because they're burning out and i've seen that happen quite a lot people got too used and dropped away from the belief because yeah how, how could that be a thing i was giving everything for god and then i lost it all um i don't know dave have you got any sort of experiences or even reflections of, of this sort of element uh, other than seeing it all the time no of course not. Um, yeah, it happens all the time. It's it, it, well, it's a classic thing that's it's always taught in um, church building classes. The twenty eighty principle, which has a name, which has just disappeared from my brain. Um, but yeah, that twenty percent of people do eighty percent of the work thing. Um, but yeah, it happens all the time. I mean, I overheard someone just today talking about how they've been asked to do tech for their church service for this thing, and they don't feel like they can say no. So just I'm really blunt. Just say no. It's not that difficult, really. Uh, but they, they feel like obliged to uh, say say yes. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it is fairly common, um, and I th I'm not sure. It's probably not intentional. <laughs> there might be. Is yeah, people with this particular talent get rinsed. I know a couple of people who are worship leaders. Um, and they got absolutely just used for their worshipping ability to sing and play guitar. And it, yeah, they realised that the church had didn't value them at all as a person. They valued them completely for what they brought, um, which you see quite a lot, unfortunately. And I think that doesn't, yeah, doesn't help someone like me very much, as you've just said, because I'm like, well, that's terrible. Um, and uh, I mean, I imagine that happened. Obviously, it happens elsewhere. It's not just the church problem, is it? I just think you you expect more um, from a church because the point of the church is like, in my mind, is a family structure. It's somewhere everybody comes together and are basic brothers and sisters in Christ. The idea that you value each other as family members and will sacrifice each other. So to see someone being used for the thing is yeah very difficult. And it does yeah happen all the time. I know people. The previous church I went to, someone who does tech, who was yeah, just taken advantage of the entire time because he was one of the people who could do the tech stuff. So he was asked to do everything um, all the time and. It took a real effort for him to break away from that, and I've seen yeah people get taken advantage of constantly, not just that sort of area, but to serve and to give and to whatnot. And I think it's it yeah, it definitely causes issues because it does raise the question: Are you are you inviting people into your thing, whatever that is, to because you want to 
spread the gospel, bring people into a family, or are you doing it because you need someone to do X, Y, and Z? Are you growing your church to reach people, as Roger was talking about then, like have it as a community, or are you doing it because you want to see it grow? Are you trying to build an empire? Is the classic one at the moment. Everyone loves that empire chat. It's in all the, the new church planting methodologies. No, no more empire building. Let's have community and authenticity while doing exactly the same thing with slightly different branding. Um, so it's just... It's frustrating, no end watching it. It's like, for God's sake, it's just like, yeah, come on. It's just, hey, Starbucks is evil. Let's go to Costa. Um, that's essentially what people are doing. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I think I see it all the time. I think it's, it, again, Rogers is a psychologist. People will go, yes, that's a thing that humans do. Um, but it seems very ever-present in the settings. And I think it causes, ero- ero- I can't even speak, damage that is, you can't revoke. There's a word for that, which wasn't coming out my mouth. Um so damaged people and i know lots of people who are away from church who might still believe or have been damaged by it um so yeah uh yeah i'm gonna stop talking because i was about to say stuff that wasn't acceptable even for me <laughs> <laughs> i um i just this, this is part of the thing i know i know, I know this is a massive tangent but I'm, I'm actually finding this really interesting this this idea of giving and time and commitment and, and actually an actual benefit to the mental human well-being like i think like if we can give away like eight percent of our time, it could be at the local library, could be food, but whatever it is, like we have a set amount of time and we're hard and limited and fast with that. Like this is what we're doing, no more, no less. Every week, bang, 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 and we get that ability to actually give something of ourselves to something else. But actually, and I've already mentioned it, something really unsexy. Like there are so many charities that you can give money to. It's so exciting, so many things trying to get your attention. But actually, there are a few charities that are. And, and and it's literally kind of like, you know, it, it's been factually proven that these five things are going to do the most good for the least amount of money. You give one pound and you'll do far more good than giving a pound to shelter or whatever. Like you can do far more with your money and actually automating that so that you have every month your money just comes out your bank and goes to it. And you don't even think about it, but you know, ultimately you're doing something. But then if you see an advert for, I don't know, it could be some sort of water project that's happening in some country that doesn't do water very well <laughs> such a bad way to say it but you know it's like a well that needs digging for this 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 girl and you can see a name and a face and you're like really really drawn to that but what's interesting is as you begin to add more and more people to that as humans we think obviously that should mean that we want to give more but it doesn't if you add her brother to that and then you add her family then you add the village then you add the entire country it drops off a plateau like it can sorry it, it drops completely like it just completely plateaus out and then disappears off a ledge because we don't work like that that isn't how the human brain functions it isn't about kind of uh giving the most to the most people it's about that little that little thing that's what helps us to thrive so so part of me wonders like if christianity just got it wrong if actually what we should be doing is finding a small percent of our time to give to a face to a name to something that is meaningful like going to the local library and helping that person that's homeless begin to look for somewhere to live and help them look for a job and begin to feed into their lives and give value doing that on a saturday morning every week for the next like 52 saturday mornings a year that's it and then you get that buzz but then also you're doing actual good more good than you would if you sold all your books roger um you're doing actual good to to give to buying mosquito nets which is so boring but actually it will literally save people's lives whereas giving to shelter might help a bit but actually it just goes into a big pool of money because it's a uk charity it just gets confused um so I, d- I don't know like part of me really feels that actually doing it that way it's not the christian model but actually it's it's a much more accessible exciting framework which is actually going to a help you as the individual but b 
do the most good for what you every pound you give and it's not about giving everything it's about giving as much as you are able to knowing that it's going to go somewhere and giving your time which is actually probably more valuable than than money to that sort of connection i don't know roger you're the literal psychologist what what do you uh what do you think stupid no, no i think you're absolutely right sam and although you said it's not the christian model i i don't know if there really is a christian model so i think what i've noticed among um i mean you know there's there's good and bad charities that have you know the word christian at the top of them um and there's some you give to and you know exactly where that's money's going and there's some you give to and it just creates a new goes into some middle manager's salary packet somewhere you know and so you you i think i think from my point of view, a good Christian thing is you have to work out. Um, so, I mean, let, let me just kind of tell you our approach to it is it, I've decided what I want to give to. And generally speaking, I don't give to anything else. So it's basically like some some sugar from Red Cross stops me on the street and wants me to sign up for something. The answer's no. Um, weirdly, the local hospice knocked on the door and I knew the hospice and the guy who spoke to me, I just really felt like he... You know, so I went, okay, yeah, let's, let's, jo we'll join in that. Um, but generally speaking, my kind of general rule is we've looked at where our money could go best. That's where we'll stick it. We'll, we'll, we'll leave the rest. So in a sense, it sounds like you're being heartless, but actually the reality is you're saying this is actually the best place for my money to go, um, given that it's a limited resource. Um, so I, I, I'd actually agree with you on, on that one, Sam. I, I think, um, because it's it's kind of like the whole issue of the parable of the good samaritan isn't it should we stop and put up every person lying by the the side of the road or ultimately if you took that as a rule does it really actually ultimately become a really bad idea because it means you're using your resources really ineffectively and you could help more people in more places so i i guess i view it as it's important for us to be compassionate but it's also important for us to be wise and prudent as well in how we express that um, and we have to balance it all the time. I, I kind of think of those people that Jesus told to go away. You know, he heals the demoniac and he says, I want to come with you. And Jesus says, no, gets the bow, <laughs> nicks off and leaves him behind. And uh, and I think sometimes there are those kind of situations where we have to say, this isn't the situation I can help because I'm helping somewhere else. Um, I, I, I sometimes hear, I've heard in some church circles, the idea of you should give until it hurts, you know, that sort of notion. And for me, that becomes the sort of dark side of vocation. You know, the dark side of vocation is basically because it's a vocation, I should give and give and give. And I think we all know those people who's, who've burnt out. And as a psychologist, I've often been in the situation of trying to intervene with people before they burn out. We're going, you're giving too much, you're loving too many people, you're giving too much of your time, you're neglecting your family, you're neglecting your health. Um, and generally, most people can't hear it in that moment because my view would be that actually quite often in those moments we're not actually serving God anymore. We are not worshipping God. We're worshipping the outcome of what we're doing. Um, so a lovely phrase in the cloud of unknowing um, on prayer that says that's basically about sort of when you come to God, not presenting loads and loads and loads and loads of what you want to do to God. And the phrase that sums it up is um, God doesn't want your help. He wants you. And this sort of idea of there's something about that divine connection that is the most important thing and it's not like god needs us to be little serving robots
but I like being a robot. Um, <laughs> and you're such a lovely robot. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. I am. Um, I find it interesting because when Dave was talking about the kind of Book of Acts, obviously the early church really believed, really believed he was coming back like tomorrow, like now, like this is happening, Jesus is returning. And and you hear stories about how different areas believe that Jesus was returning and, and actually doing different things like he's going to return here, he's going to do this, he's going to be in the desert. And he kind of even says to them like, you know, don't, don't chase these things. And you can almost feel like like the gospel narrators obviously writing quite a long time after he said these things, adding these words into his mouth because so many people had predicted or lived into this idea that he was there and he was going to come back but actually he never he never did and i kind of sit now and and you kind of almost watch the the new testament individuals living their lives deconstructing their idea of when christ is going to return they're having to then deconstruct that and then reconstruct it and it isn't a simple necessarily like um drawn through process it, it's messy and it's challenging and, and you even see paul changing some of his theology and some of these ways of working he's also resting with the same thing that i thought he was going to return soon he's not it looks like i'm going to die before he comes back what does that mean and it, it's a fascinating sort of journey that the christian's on and this is what i mean by starting with deconstruction like you literally see it in the new testament and i find that to be an incredibly good space to actually be able to begin to sit down with the book and and re-begin to explore the narratives and stories within it because you're seeing that yes you know things might be put into jesus mouth well after the fact um some things might not have been and he will obviously have been someone who said stuff well i believe he was someone who said stuff and we've, we've captured some of his actual words within the narratives of the of the, the gospels especially um but you begin to see humanity within the story and you know god's fingerprints might be on humanity in some ways and you know, they might have thought that they were going one way and they went another way and i kind of wonder also like what are we going to have to deconstruct like if if jesus is real if it's true what are the things that we're holding that are, are needing to be remade and changed um i'm not saying he is real or is true but i define that a really interesting question to ask like you know Could if he is on. sorry sometimes I, I, I realized we said we weren't going to butt in and there's me putting it it's just that i think you're saying something really important i've been thinking about loads um recently so because one of the questions i've been trying to answer is why is it during the time you and i've been speaking that even though i've been facing harder questions about my christianity than i've ever faced at the same time my christianity seems to have got deeper and stronger and whatever and and for me it's actually it's the social change we've gone through in those two years really that I've gone from a sense of the church is a bit of a waste of time and I should give up on it and collapse into a kind of secular liberalism because that's kind of where the stability ends and that's probably reality too my church under covid broke down into lots of tiny missional communities which I'm really really enjoying being part of and they feel like the most loving real places in my life now and the liberal secular world that i would have collapsed into perhaps as an atheist now looks like a disaster to me like it looks like it's literally all about to totally collapse and for me the church feels like the most solid thing that, that's around so i think part of it is just that social calculation i've been doing about which of these things looks like the most reliable thing to sort of pin my life to and so church has changed and society has changed in that time for me but then when i look back at the early um, sort of church I start to think it's not so much they weren't sort of having one person all that kind of stuff just because they thought Jesus was coming back I think one of the things that Jesus had left with them as well was a sense of imminent societal collapse that all of this is going to fall to pieces so don't rely on what's around you you need to create this alternative community that shares a purse and has its own way of being 
because you know, if, if you read Tom Wright, Tom Wright saying Jesus is predicting the end of the temple and the, the end of Judaism as they knew it really. But my, my feeling is I can really see that coming back. Like I, I was literally just talking to my other half the other night saying, I can see us ending up back in really small communities that have microfinance and look after their own money. And at some point, Sam's going to launch into a talk about Bitcoin at any minute now or something like that. But I can really see us ending back in looking something like that, not because we chose to and we thought it was important, but because the other sources of security or whatever just all fell to pieces and didn't work anymore. So that that's sort of where I feel I'm at at the moment. I'm sort of looking and the world and it all looks pretty scary and pretty disastrous and for the first time in a while for me the church looks like you know my church the local community that i'm in looks like a, a reasonable place to be dave i want to push it back to you you've been quiet which is weird um so i'm going to bring it over to you in a nice way and then if you could just career the car straight over the sort of side of the road off into a ditch that would be um That'd be beautiful. Um, so uh, kind of for me, obviously, Roger's speaking about something which I am completely unable to access. So the church I came to Halifax to be a part of has collapsed. It, over COVID, it completely collapsed. There is absolute fallout. People's lives have been completely ruined. There is depression. There is horror. There is suffering. Other people have found other churches. They're carrying on. They just act like nothing really went wrong. But, you know, there was this belief amongst many Christians that this was going to be a church that plants churches, the light across the valley, et cetera, et cetera. It, it hasn't come to anything. Um, it's sorry, I'm smashing my keyboard by mistake. Um, it hasn't come to anything. It's caused loads of issues. And you know, Dave, I know that you've seen similar things in in your own place. So, before I pass you the wheel for you to start driving the car, kind of, what, what do you think to this? Do you think that you know, even if people can't access this thing that Roger's talking about right now, do you think it's still a worthy pursuit? Do you think it's still something we should be beginning to try and comprehend as as a sort of questioning Christian or as me as a, a struggling agnostic? Like, what does it, what does this look like? How do we begin to start delving with this Christian concept that small community, uh, communities are, are where life really is being focused upon during this difficult time? Like, does that even make sense within the worldviews that we've seen and, and the place we've come from this Christian narrative? I mean, you know what I've said before, I, I've always had the view that it's the only, <laughs> it's the only like Christianity that's ever made sense to me like what Roger was talking about there, in a sense, part of it anyway. Um, never want to truly fully agree with anyone, just going to deliberately disagree with you at least one point. Uh, but yeah, muttering and stumbling over my own words. It, it's, it's fairly basic. If there's if there's two billion Christians in the world, whoever it is, any, if they all just helped, what is it, we're now 8 billion people in the world? Yeah, went to 8 billion recently, didn't it? Because India is on the verge of overtaking China population. Anyway, the point is lots of people, but you only need to help four people. I know it's not possible because not everyone is all over the world. I get the maths, but you don't actually need to help many people if everyone did it properly for it to have a radical difference across the world. Like if everyone just helps their neighbor, <laughs> like someone important said that, um, then it's really like basic. So my, my feeling is that, yeah, we've, we've strived, the church has strived and strived to make this thing that it never needed to be. All this wasted effort and resource into creating a, a thing when it didn't ever need to be a thing it just needed people living self-sacrificially so my my view even not even if this is answer the question is yes I, I think this is the most attractive and profound aspect of christianity that is the most interesting to explore and the most um attractive yeah whereas the other stuff is just tiresome boring and old and is full of just it doesn't work. It, well, it doesn't work if people try keep trying it. It's frustrating. Again, like we'll just keep doing the same thing over and over again and hit our 
heads against brick wall and it'll turn out the pastor sleeping with his secretary. Like, it just happens over and over again. And so it'd be nice if people went, oh, my, that doesn't work. Um, I'm not sure if I fully agree, Roger, about the world collapsing. I can see the view, but I think the world is always on the verge of collapse. And it's just maybe we're a bit more concerned than we were. Uh, but yes, this this aspect of Christianity is, the only, is much more appealing than yeah, pastors with glamour smiles and lights and bands and uh, orchestrated worship experiences. <sighs> so there we go, that's my view on it. I like it. I, um, I said something right at the beginning. I'm going to get it up on my phone because I sent it to somebody in an email recently. Somebody was saying to me they've just recently kind of stopped being a Christian and they're trying to work out where they should land with it so they can kind of begin to build their own community around around their lives. And um, So I'm, I'm going to read this email and then I kind of want to get your take on it because it, it, it's, it's around that sort of atheism being a position of pause rather than a destination. And it's going to piss a lot of atheists off, so I, I, I apologise uh, in advance. I'm not trying to make people annoyed. I'm just trying to be honest with my own journey and stuff. Um, but anyway, this, this individual um, asked a question around sort of kind of is atheism just a belief and you know is it okay if they sit there and i said um my take is that it depends on how you live your life if you enter into a community and find your purpose within atheism then i think it can be a belief which needs to be substantiated for purpose to remain it can like religious faith become an unquestionable stance upon which everything is built these days i stay clear of the term atheist when i talk about myself because although i struggle with understanding how classic theistic renderings of god make sense it doesn't mean I have any knowledge that God isn't real, and therefore my belief isn't formed thus far. He might be there, and I've just not understood how it links together yet. If atheism is a position of pause, then embrace it. If it is a destination, then, and this is where I would get a lot of hate from many others within this space, you've taken a wrong turn. For me, atheism is a place where you can begin to go, I don't know, I don't. I currently don't believe that there is a God. That is where I am right now. I don't know there's not a God, but I don't believe there is a God right now. But from that place, you can begin to explore it quite openly and quite honestly and from an extraordinarily raw stance. Um, I know that a lot of people are atheists and that is their position starting and that is their default. And that's where they're going to go. And for me, that's a bit of a sad affair. I, I think that if you can begin to hold these things and consistently try and deconstruct the narratives you hold around your belief systems, you can begin to really find what is true to your heart and to your mind and to the world around you, live into different versions of that and see which one strikes the most core to those around you. Um, so yeah, I'm aware a lot of my listeners are going to be quite pissed off at that, but I think Roger, starting with you kind of because at your takes and then if you want to pass it over to Dave, that'd be fantastic. Yeah, I, I I don't quite know what to say in in response to that. Other than I I have that sense of my Christianity as it stands being a sort of provisional sort of position as well. Um, not not in the sense that I'm a Christian and then I might be an atheist and then I might be a Buddhist and then I might be a whatever. But I sort of feel like as a Christian, I'm always sort of on the way. So when you know when. Dave quite rightly is saying, you know, it would be easier to believe Christianity if people behaved a bit more like Jesus. You know, that would make it easier to know it was true. Um, I, I feel like I live in a constant sort of, usually hopefully it's moving forward, but sometimes it's a bit tidal of trying to become more and more like Jesus in various different ways. And each one of those steps involves a sort of... Um, like so, so the way the way I've sort of viewed it is when I first became a Christian I just thought it was all about me doing stuff for God so I was one of God's little robots 
just do what he does. And then very quickly I ran into all the reasons why that didn't work. So, you know, my shame, depression, sinfulness, um, anxiety, etc. And then you get into a sort of sense of self-confrontation. And then for a while you're in a sort of phase that looks really sort of self-indulgent because you're trying to figure all that stuff out. But then I think once you get past that, and, and many different religious traditions talk about this, you get to a point of self-transcendence, which is more of you starts to look beyond your own ego crap towards what's out there in love, really, um, towards God, towards other people and that kind of thing. And I would view myself in, in the journey away from my own ego and self being the centre towards God and others being the centre, um, but very much in the middle of it. So So why I'm saying that is that I then have this sense of transition of not quite you know of sort of seeing elements of that getting glimpses of it but it not at all being the destination not being there not being a, a thing so um Kierkegaard my favorite philosopher used to say that that um Christian is a verb not a noun you know that it's you are you're constantly Christianing you know you're learning to be like Christ and he he was the person who in a Christian culture basically said if this is Christianity I'm not that so I'm the only person here who isn't a Christian so I will be on my way to becoming a Christian and I think for me that's probably the most accurate way to describe myself which is just as I think atheists might go this might not be the final place I land I feel like wherever I am with Christianity it's not the final place I will land but the faith for me is is in Jesus it's like somehow there's something trustworthy in following that particular path. I hope you enjoyed this episode of When Belief Dies. As always, to leave any comments or thoughts, head on over to YouTube. To follow me on Twitter or to see where else I'm online, check out the links in the description. Thank you to all our regular givers for making this show a reality. And until next time, enjoy the journey.